Nuclear. This field of science was responsible for the devastating conclusion to the Second World War. This alone would be enough to suggest why few other technologies conjure as much misunderstanding and fear. Today, the very same field now quietly supports our way of life by providing unique ways to interact with reality. It allows us to observe the world in impossibly fine resolution, it enables us to measure and gauge events of the distant past, offers options for diagnosis and treatment of severe ailments, and generates great power with exceptionally low carbon emissions. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. Nuclear power has not been instigated in Australia. In fact, Australia is the only nation in the top 20 OECD countries that does not consume nuclear-generated electricity. The Australian Nuclear Association has been a proponent for the adoption of the technology since its inception in 1983. This episode's guest is the former President and current Vice President of the ANA. Robert Parker, welcome to Going Fishing. Good afternoon. Thanks for the invitation for this uh, video. It's a great initiative you've undertaken, Logan, and I look forward to helping you out with it. Thank you very much, and thanks to you for, a, uh, for helping me a, um, with this endeavour. All right, so first question. We'll start with your career prior to nuclear. You've uh, been a project manager with some big names in the construction industry and the mining industry. Could you briefly give us a description of, of your career history? Yes. <clears throat> Basically, I spent most of my working life as a site project engineer and project manager on large civil engineering infrastructure jobs in Australia and internationally. For example, large urban tollways, power station projects, uh, railway, roadworks, and uh, internationally, I was involved with some of the world's largest hydropower projects on the, in the Mekong River and Da River areas of Vietnam. So uh, I've been fortunate in having civil engineering take me right around the globe. Um, more recently, after a lot of site work, I got involved in the technical and economic evaluation of major projects. So that's consumed a fair bit of my time over the last 10 or so years. But uh, that was all capped off with the work I've now been doing in looking at nuclear energy to address climate change in our Australian environment. Before we get sort of too deep into the, uh, um, into the nuclear thing, I was actually interested looking into your career with, the, um, with dams, and you were talking about your development and construction of, of roller-compacted concrete dams, which have been a large part of your career. Could you tell us a bit about those? Yeah. <clears throat> Traditionally, and if you look at most of the dams, for example, we've got in the uh, snowy area, they were clay cord rock fill or mass rock fill dams, various forms like that. Um, going in parallel with that, we had the very large uh, concrete gravity dams, uh, like the dams around Sydney catchment area, and we had large arch dams like Hoover Dam, for example, in the United States is a notable one. Now, dams got pretty expensive, and so what we tried to do is achieve the reliability and robustness of mass concrete dams, which were traditionally formed up and poured with wet concrete, uh, 
and we introduced earthworks technology into building concrete dams. So uh, roller compacted concrete dams are what they say, what they actually, uh, in the name, they, we mix concrete, but it's very dry. We place it with a bulldozer between formwork and we roll it, compact it with large road going type rollers. This gives terrific uh, productivity improvements, makes the mass concrete cheaper. It's very strong and we get very reliable dams that way. We've got a few in Australia, but uh, the largest of them are in places like the Three Gorges in China and a lot of the ones we see now in Vietnam and Laos and places like that. The Three Gorges Dam, that's, if I remember correctly, is that the largest hydro largest dam, dam in, the, in world. the world? It's a massive, yeah. massive operation massive there. Dam. Yeah. yeah, sweet. And I, I, I worked on quite a number of, of those dams, and it was an in, it, it's always interesting to be at the forefront of a technology. It was quite exciting. But uh, what uh, I always saw in working on these dams, and I, I worked on ones in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, and also in places as remote as Eritrea and Africa and uh, even in Iran. Um, wherever I went, I saw that the actual water flows in catchments were declining. The world has been going through a progressively drying period and I became concerned about this um, and the impact of man's uh, anthropogenic-induced uh, climate change. Uh, I, I really got a, quite a hint that it was occurring internationally from the projects I was working on. Wow. I also have a, a pretty firm opinion that dams are, um, are not to be built in areas uh, where a lot of people rely on the waterways. They are, they have considerable problems in terms of their environmental impacts and people tend to forget that when they advocate them. They're, they are of a concern, uh, particularly the ones in tropical areas like we've got in Asia where they've got very high methane emissions and in fact some of the very large tropical dams, their methane emissions rival the climate change impacts of thermal coal power stations. Where, There's a very does, big question mark. Where does methane come from a, from, a, from a dam? It comes from the degradation of the organic matter that sits in the topsoil. Uh, when you impound the reservoir, all of that organic matter, particularly in tropical regions, decays and that produces through an aerobic action it produces bubbling methane. And over the years, as the reservoir fills with more organic matter from upstream, that material continues to decay within the reservoirs. And so this methane is generally liberated out of the turbines and it gives off, within the reservoir as well, it gives off quite a strong amount of methane to the atmosphere. Now methane, is a very strong greenhouse gas. Many people think it's 23 times stronger that than uh, carbon dioxide. Well, that, it is 23 times wow. stronger over 100 years, but over a 20-year period, it gets up to be about 100 times more potent than, climate, than carbon dioxide. And uh, I would think that over, it's over those two and three decadal periods, over a 
resource that continues to emit uh, methane that we ought to be worrying about the shorter term rather than the longer term impacts of methane. So it's a real concern on, on large dams. Wow, well, I've learned something today, if nothing else. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, all right. So next question. Look, you finished your civil bachelor's way back in 1989, and you completed your master's in nuclear science in 2014. So how does a civil engineering project manager with 25 years' experience building dams and other large bits of infrastructure get drawn down the nuclear rabbit hole? Okay. So as I said, working in Asia as I was uh, on large dams, and one day at a place called Eidsvold in Queensland, I was building a, a whole instrumental with others in building a, a weir on, on the river at Eidsvold. And... Uh, I was driving onto the site one day and I thought, you know, you keep hearing about climate change, you keep, it, it is a growing impact, uh, it's about time you got involved in this as an issue. And so in my area, in the Southern Highlands, I with others started a climate change group, an awareness group. This goes back to about 2005, I guess. Right. And uh, we got underway with that. Now... Um, that drew in a lot of people who were considering things such as renewable energy and those sorts of measures to deal with it. Um, my engineer's hat told me very early on that nuclear may actually be the way to go. That was reinforced by one of the world's greatest uh, and most knowledgeable people on climate change, was Dr James Hansen from the United States um, at Columbia University. And he was also a director of the Goddard Space Institute at NASA. Now, <clears throat> going back into that same period, I got in touch with James Hansen and I with the St. James Essex Centre in Sydney, uh, Adelaide University and Sydney University. We funded him to come to Australia and we filled the Melbourne Town Hall with a talk that he gave and a debate around climate change. We filled a number of halls around Sydney and uh, uh, we had quite a good, strong tour. And it was James Hansen's opinion on the essential nature of nuclear energy to address climate change, along with a lot of other key thinkers on how we address climate change who are advocating for the use of nuclear energy to be the solution to it, or at least be centre stage in the way in which we address the issue. So it was with that inspiration that um, I started to advocate for nuclear, but very quickly realised that, uh, if you like, a grand scheme of, of quality assurance to make sure I wasn't deluding myself, felt I'd better go and find out something about this stuff. Uh, at that time, the only place in Australia where you could even do a course that remotely resembled something on nuclear engineering was a nuclear science course at the Australian National University. And so I went off and did that course, a master's there in nuclear science so that I could more fully understand the risks of nuclear energy, the issues that give rise to radiation, its impact upon people, and also the elements of how you go about powering a nuclear reactor and what the process is all about. So that, in a nutshell, is why I went down that route. Um, having done that, 
I also joined the Australian Nuclear Association to find even more experienced people from whom I could draw some inspiration along these lines. And I did that and joined the ANA and shortly thereafter, uh, I guess because of my keenness for public advocacy, I was asked to become the president where I was for three years, the president of that institute. Excellent. So it's, it's been a, a, long, a long tour all the way, checking, uh, being cautious about the technology to understand it, um, and also ultimately going up to Fukushima, where I walked around Fukushima province uh, with my Geiger counter to look at the impacts of the Fukushima incident upon the province of Fukushima. Always trying to go to the source of the issues, understand and comprehend the full gamut of what we're seeing. Well, okay, so you were the president of the Australian Nuclear Association for three years. Would you tell us a bit more about um, the association and what it does? Okay, the Australian Nuclear Association is a voluntary organisation. It only contains uh, individuals as members. It derives no money for any corporation. So it's, we've got about 120, 140 members at this stage. Uh, and at present, it's undergoing a bit of a generational uh, renewal where younger people are coming onto the committee, and I hope more will. Uh, and I would advocate that anyone um, join us. It's, it's quite cheap. It only costs $50 a year to be a member. But it's very important that people out there in the society who are thinking about nuclear energy and want to get a bit more information about it come along and join the association, join the dialogue. Um, we hold about seven or eight public lectures a year at, uh, at the Ainsley Theatre at Lucas Heights. We hold meetings together with what we call the Four Society, it's Institution of Engineers, um, and with the, the Australian Institute of Energy and the Royal Society. And we hold these uh, meetings where we can have learned speakers discuss all matters of energy and science um, for, for the audience. So it's really a science-based professional organisation for uh, improvement in knowledge and dialogue. The South Korean nuclear fleet has been of interest to the Australian Nuclear Association and to yourself, of course. Uh, in particular, the APR-1000 and the APR-1400 variants. Um, firstly, what are these machines? Okay. They are generically what we call pressurised water nuclear reactors. And so the APR-1000, it's an advanced version of what they call the OPR-1000. So Korea has had a very exciting rise in using nuclear energy. Uh, it goes back to the period of national reconstruction after the Korean War. Um, in the 70s, they built their very first reactor. They, in fact, it consumed about half their national debt when they wow. built their very first reactor. They, they bet the house on, the, on their first reactor and, and it's paid handsomely in that nation for its economic rise. Um, we see, we know the problems Australia is facing with its rising electricity tariffs. 
But in the period of about a 17 or 18 year duration in Korea, they've had an increase in electricity costs of about 50%. It's not been particularly high. During that period, their GDP rose 16-fold. Okay. What happens in Korea is they do not commodify electricity the way we do. They use electricity as a facilitator of economic wealth throughout their nation. And so the great lesson that we can see in nations like Korea is that you do not use electricity in the hands of corporate raiders to strangle the economy. You use it as a, a mechanism to facilitate the growth of the rest of the economy because it is really the thing that enables manufacturing and industry and commerce to occur with certainty of investment. Now, they did this by going out there and studying the various energy options. And so they built the first pressurised water reactor. And thereafter, they brought in a design from the United States <coughs> called the System 80 reactor. And that is a pressurised water thermal reactor. At that stage, I think from memory, they had about six or 700 megawatts in the very first one, megawatts output. And so then for, they built... Just for um, clarification, sort of how does that sort of compare to uh, any other sort of reactor? It's an intermediate-sized reactor. At that period, at that time, the French, for example, had built 58 reactors. Uh, their smallest size was about 900 megawatts. That was a Westinghouse design. And uh, then they uh, built, I think their next ones were about 11 or 1200 megawatts. So the six or 700 megawatt first reactors that they built were not especially large, but they fitted their grid at the time and they were a good challenge. Um, then they moved on to the to reactors in the 900 megawatt category. And that was the OP, OPR 1000. Um, after that, uh, they developed the APR, Advanced Pressurised Reactor 1400. And that is a 1 1.4 gigawatt or 1400 megawatt reactor. And they've built from memory about four of those, I think, at this stage. Um, they've got about 10 of the OPR 1000s. They've got a couple of um, heavy water reactors, and then they've got their earlier generation of six or 700 megawatt reactors. So all in up, they've got about 20 reactors, I believe, in South Korea um, with a mix, but the mix is evolving. Um, they then went over to the United Arab Emirates and they built 5.6 gigawatts of energy there with four of these 1400 megawatt reactors. And they built those, they started in, from memory, 2009. I think their first um, concrete was poured in 2012. And they've completed the first one, nearing completion on the second, and they'll have all four of them knocked off by 2020. So it's been a very disciplined program in probably the hardest environment you could think of building a reactor. And I mean, the heat is intense. 
the dust is intense, the foundations conditions over there are horrible. <laughs> it's a difficult place to build reactors, and yet they've done it in that hostile environment. If they could do it there, and we thought, well, we need them here because our That's place, this place, is. is a cakewalk compared to working in the United Arab Emirates. Wow. Um, look, just before I sort of move on, you mentioned OPR. Um, what does that stand for? Uh, well, it's the original pressurised reactor um, that they used as opposed to the APR. What they're doing as they evolve reactors, the original reactors in that Generation 2 group, as we'd call them, were reactors that had all analogue control systems and they had levels of safety which are steadily being enhanced. One of the enhancement methods that we see in modern reactors are issues such as putting in hydrogen recombiners. So should you get an event such as that that happened at Fukushima where the uh, rods overheated and started to melt, the zirconium lining around or cladding around the uh, fuel rods, uh, when it gets very hot, it causes a catalytic breakdown of water into oxygen and hydrogen. The hydrogen uh, comes out into the atmosphere and that can cause an explosion, which is what happened to the reactor uh, buildings at Fukushima. Now, modern reactors have ways of dealing with that, of progressively burning it off or recombining it so that it does not present a danger. So that's one of the things you do in generation three reactors. Other means are you look at uh, ways of putting water into the reactors uh, in the event of a meltdown. So how do you take active measures to drive water into those reactors, unlike the issues that we saw at Fukushima, where they were unable to do that uh, in a very timely manner. So you put in place a whole bunch of regimes to be able to get water in an urgent manner into the reactors to keep them cool. Other means you look at is how can I flood the zone around the reactor pressure vessel? So I might decide through the architecture of my internals of the reactor of the power, power plant to put the pressure vessel low in the zone and I will have water elevated in things such as the, uh, <clears throat> the water storage that's used to flood the reactor compartment when I change fuel over. So I've got those reservoirs sitting inside my reactor containment and I can flood the zone with those reservoirs all around it in the event of uh, an overheating of the reactor. And so these are other means of controls. Now, some of those means of controls also involve what we call passive measures. So we can have an active measure whereby I positively drive a pump to drive that emergency core coolant, or I can do it by virtue of a passive means of having the water descend under set points through passive control devices. I can also look at means such as thermosiphoning of heat up and away from the reactor pressure vessel. And so then we go to the ultimate being the 
AP1000 reactor, the Westinghouse reactors. And if you think about the AP1000, I often think of a metaphor a bit like the uh, metal vessels that we have at a barbecue that contain propane. Now you imagine inside such a metal vessel, if I've got a very hot element, for example, I've got a, um, a reactor that's overheating and I put some water around that reactor and that water boils off inside that pressure vessel, that metal pressure vessel. Now, if I then choose to pass water over that steel, it recondenses that water back inside the pressure vessel and that water becomes available for continued recooling of the reactor. So all of that is a passive means of keeping the reactor cool, if you like. And so you use conduction and convection through normal physical processes to enable the reactor to keep cool and you're not reliant, for example, upon pumps to do that work for you. Now, all of that's all very good with a passive cool reactor, provided you have you are pretty darn sure over what all the events are that could enable the passive system to come into play. Um, but unfortunately, these events are not cannot always be foretold. And so ideas about having both passive and active means available, and the active means, you can use those in the event that despite your best guesses at how these events could occur, you still need something up your sleeve. And so you have active means to operate as well. So you, you can have a mix, and the mix very much is what the Koreans tend to look at with their reactors, their advanced pressurised reactors. They have both active and passive means going into their designs. Well, it sounds like the, um, the, the textbook definition of defence in depth. Correct. That's exactly what uh, reactors are. And your first means of defence with pressurised water reactors is, of course, the cladding going around the fuel. That's your, your first uh, level of defence, that cladding keeps the, the fuel in and away from the primary coolant circuit. And your next level of defence is <clears throat> your actual reactor pressure vessel. Then you've got your containment. And then you've got your emergency clearance zones around that. So you've got four and five and six layers of defence uh, around that uh, in the event of, of an overheating of the fuel. Excellent. So... One of the things sort of that I remember when sort of I was doing my studies, I was talking about the AP1000 and sort of studying the AP1000. It was um, very much still an application of, of existing uh, pressurised water reactors, but to me it seemed like it was streamlining the process to make them more efficient uh, and just to improve a whole lot of the safety things. Can you tell us a bit more about about what they did with the uh, the AP1000 design? They developed a new method of construction for those, which they thought would streamline the construction and make them cheaper. And so instead of using the traditional concrete formed and reinforced concrete formed and pour process, they determined that they would build a sandwich panel of steel using shipbuilding techniques, bring that in and place it 
uh, and then backfill that with concrete. It sounded like a good way because the idea being that all of these prefabricated boxes could be placed rather quickly with very large cranes and that you could shorten the construction process. Um, I'm not sure that that has actually uh, borne the fruit in terms of low cost. Uh, to get the tolerances on that steel, to get them all made in a timely manner, uh, exceeded the ability of um, the United States steel industry to manufacture that. And in fact, those sandwiched units were made by companies such as IHI Shipbuilding, I think in Japan or in Taiwan. So they had to go offshore to get the things built. And so what seemed like a good idea at the time had problems in terms of reinvigorating United States industry to address the matter. Um, the reactor pressure vessel itself designed for the AP1000, which is a, you know, a really good reactor in, in design, but from the people who actually make those pressure vessels, they've told me that it is probably the hardest reactor pressure vessel uh, there is to make uh, because they want to get a very long lifespan out of it and it's made to extremely tight tolerances. So a lot of the things with the AP1000, uh, they may be teething problems and in the hands of the right type of industrial economy with the right supply chain, it may work. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, it's not born fruit and this could be as much as anything a result of what we call post-industrial economies not being able to rise to the challenge. I mean, they don't have a shipbuilding industry over there anymore and so all of these things are uh, possibly in decline in that, in that nation. Um, it's for that reason that uh, we tend to look towards the nations of North Asia for a probable solution to the industrial construction issues of nuclear power reactors. This is simply sort of a case that it's those, not necessarily what you call developing nations, but nations that have not developed to the same point as, say, in the West, that actually have those skills today that is needed to, to build these high, high tolerance structures. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'll mention more about that in detail, but in, in summary, what the AP1000 attempted to do, and quite correctly, is if you, if you take the last pressurised water reactor that was built in the United Kingdom with size will be, and that, that power station consumed about 500,000 cubic metres of concrete. The AP1000 was intended to consume about 100,000 cubic metres of concrete. In other words, 20% of the amount of size will be. Um, the reinforcing bar, which was intended to be used in the AP1000 was about um, 12,000 tonnes. Uh, size will be had 65,000 tonnes. Again, we've got only about 20%. And yet both reactors had a similar uh, power output. Massive difference. A massive difference. So the AP1000, is a really good idea. And I'm not convinced that it can't succeed, but it does have a problem in the nation which may not have the infrastructure in place to really build it. 
So we go then to the nation like South Korea. We go to Doosan Heavy Industries. That's the place where the bits are made. And at Doosan Heavy Industries, we were there in May, we saw the world's largest forging press, 17,000 tonne forging press. We watched it sit there forging part of a turbine for a, a power station. Um, at Doosan Heavy Industries, the blast furnace steel comes in and in the arc furnaces there, it's re-alloyed to make the different kinds of stainless steel and low alloy steels that are required for nuclear power reactors and steam generators and for that matter, the large crankshafts and marine diesel motors that are also built there. So they make the steel there. They, they, they take that new alloyed steel out and they pass that over to the forging shop in about 600 tonne billets. Wow. It goes through the big forges. It's got a 13,000 tonne forge. It's got a 1,500 tonne forge. It's got a 17,000 tonne forge. And they work, they work that and they build all of the components, the, the steam generators, the reactor pressure vessels, all of those bits. Um, but Doosan doesn't just make power reactors. I mean, they build, while we were there, massive turbine shafts for coal-fired power stations, hydro power stations, a whole suite of power stations. They build the world's largest crankshafts for huge uh, ocean-going vessels, giant diesel engines are manufactured there for very large sea-going vessels. So it's a diverse industry. And what you find out when you go to a workshop like that and you come out absolutely gobsmacked by the fact that when you want to build this stuff, it's an art as well as a science, as well as engineering. The art of not getting inclusions in the forgings, the art of getting the right stress relief in the forgings. All of the ways of achieving the integrity of the castings and the forgings they make, there are decades of skills resident in that type of facility. And so you come away with a profound respect for what is required to build large power stations, be they coal, be they nuclear, be they anything. You've got to protect the industrial base of your nation, and that's what Korea's been able to do. Japan is also able to do that. China's able to do that. Um, the remnants of the French industry at Le Creusot is able to do that. Uh, the Russians are able to do that. But you've got to keep that solid industrial metalliferous and uh, forging capability within your economy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing when you think about it. I mean, just our automotive manufacturing industry in South Australia has collapsed. I mean, that was just yes. building cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are becoming very much passive nations. Uh, we are price takers on our exports and uh, we are technology takers on anything that's brought in. You mentioned forge pressing. Um, I actually don't know what that is. Is that a bit like plastic inject injection moulding, but ramped no, up massively for steel? Nothing like it. All right, tell me about that. Okay. If you imagine 
you've got a big hunk of steel, okay, and you've just taken it out of the electric arc furnace and it's it's sitting there at about 1100 degrees centigrade. So is that red and hot? Is it Red hot, yeah. right? We're talking about above red hot. This thing's orange hot. Yep. Okay. And it comes across to the forging shop. And while it's curling, it's getting beaten into the shape. So it's very much a plastic material. It's not, um, it, it's, it's steadily taken from a billet into the shape you want by pressing, by forging this thing, hitting it with a bloody great hammer. And you will pass a mandrel through that plastic material to make your cylinder. So you're using a process of driving mandrels through this stuff and hitting the thing with these large presses to create round cylinders um, or into long um, shafts that you then subsequently machine. So the process is not extrusion. Well, it is a kind of extrusion, but it's pretty much like the blacksmith. Only you're putting big machinery, you start with a bit of hot metal and you are beating it into the shape that you want. And this <coughs> process creates very strong metal because of the alignment of the grain structure as you, as you forge it and force it into the shape you're after. Okay. Think about it, yes. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. Okay, so these reactors, these APR 1400s and APR 1000s, do you see a, a place in Australia for this technology? I see the place in Australia emerging most urgently. <clears throat> we started off this discussion today talking about what motivated me to do this. And the motivation comes out of the need to address climate change. <clears throat> climate change will not affect my life particularly severely. I'm 67 and I'll be boxed and buried sometimes in the next 20 years. My eight grandchildren and my three children will be severely affected. <clears throat> the way the world is going at present my eight young grandchildren will be lucky to have the lifespan that you and I are going to have. We need to be quite aware that the world is going to be a much more difficult place for these kids. And it's in our hands to do something about this. <clears throat> At present in Australia, we have a bunch of coal-fired power stations. We've got about 20 gigawatts of coal power sitting in Australia at present. We've got an even bigger problem with the gas. People think that gas is a solution. Gas is not a solution. <clears throat> gas, particularly the open cycle gas turbines, they're putting out about four or 500 grams of carbon for every kilowatt, um, kilowatt hour. The coal is putting out the best part of a thousand grams and you guys down in Victoria are putting it out with about 1200 grams. Oh yeah, brown coal brown is coal. dirty even by coal standards. Yeah, even by coal standards, bad news. 
If you've got 3% lost methane, then you end up, by virtue of the amount of uh, greenhouse gas activity of unburned methane, you end up with emissions about as bad as a coal power station out of a gas turbine. So you've got to really control your losses. In the United States, over the Marcellus oil shale fields, they've got satellites there indicating that they're getting emission losses of around about 7 or 8%. Gas is not a solution. Gas is actually an entrapment. Wow. The thing that really entraps gas is wind power. The intermittent and totally unplanned nature of, of wind power in particular means that for every wind power station you build, you are obligated to put in an amount of, of gas to back it up. It's axiomatic. It's a great business opportunity under the renewable energy targets to build wind, and it's a great opportunity for outfits like AGL to build gas to back that up. It's a marriage made in heaven if you're under a corporation, but it's not fixing climate change. So what we need to do in respect of our, um, our, our fossil fuels is we need in particular to be looking at replacing the coal power plants with um, nuclear power. Now, <clears throat> to give you a bit of a time frame, it's thought that that 20 gigawatts of coal will all drop out generally by around about 2045-2050. The French built 58 reactors with 63 gigawatts of power, okay? Three times the Australian demand and they built that over a 22-year period. And they built that, get this, before the advent of personal computers into the workplace. That's insane. They did it between the 1970s and 1990s. Wow. It, it, to me, is one of the marvels, the industrial marvels of the Industrial Revolution that they managed to achieve that. Um, <clears throat> I've seen those reactors. I've been through them. Now, what I'm talking about here is that we in Australia could be building about 18 to 20 gigawatts, and we need to be doing that quite quickly. We could do it between now and something like 2042, all right? We could do it over a similar 20-year period, but our productivity would only need to be about a third of what the French had. And you've got to remember, this was a nation that had been belted around in the Second World War, and we're not a nation that was as as advanced as ours is at present. So we need to really consider replacing our coal power plants with nuclear power plants, and we could do that. And it would provide a phenomenal number of jobs. It would provide around about six and a half thousand jobs for about two decades. All right, many hundreds of millions of man hours would be consumed in it and it would be a new industrial base for Australia. <clears throat> Australia could do this because unlike 
using solar or wind, where our industrial input is, is, is extends really under opening cardboard boxes that arrive off ships, we could actually be an integral part of the system. There's about 86% of a nuclear power plant could be built in Australia if we chose to pull our fingers out and get on with the job. And once again, take charge of our nation's destiny. That's the sort of thing we need to be doing. It's <clears throat> in terms of labour and, and, and engineering and skills input, the percentages are similar. In fact, the high, is, uh, the high skills base is only about 11% of the man hours. And the medium and low is about 89%. And we could choose to have any percentage up to about 89%. If we got really ambitious, sure, we could get a forging press in and we could do that ourselves as well. But, you know, while the capacity is sitting there in the nations of Korea in Doosan heavy industries, you'd have to ask yourself why you do that. But it is the potential for phenomenal economic and industrial renewal in Australia. And you've got to remember, this is not a money-sucking operation. The power that you get out of these reactors powers the rest of our economy and people pay for it. It's not like building submarines. It's not like building jet aircraft. That's a hole to pump money down. We've got to defend our nation. But... Nuclear power reactors would power our nation for the best part of a century. I mean, these things, their first licensing is 60 years, and thereafter the second licensing takes them out to 80 or 100. So we're talking about a century asset for our nation, and it's the type of thing that our nation needs to commit to. And 100 years is a long time. What was happening 100 years ago? We were just finishing up the First World War. Um, you have a fleet like this, like your energy is done. You're set You're done. for 100 your years. Your energy say, um, is done, yes. And you get on and you use that energy. But the other thing you've done is you've created a system, going back to what the Koreans did, is having committed to that power, you then go on and you build other industry and you give your aluminium smelters and your, all your smelters, all your other petrochemicals, all those other industries have a surety in investment. At present, we know that there is no nation in the world that has powered our economy, its economy using intermittent renewables. No one has done it. The closest that's tried is Germany, and they're still sitting on about four or 500 grams CO2 per kilowatt hour, they're still at around about 10 or 12 times France. And they're not, there's no indication they're going to get below, not while they're building now another or even more uh, gas pipelines in from Russia. So the solution is not down that route. There is no surety in terms of the industrial future of your nation, even your commercial future of your nation, if you're going down that route because that is an experiment into, into the unknown. You're playing with your, your nation's future without any surety of knowing where you're going with it. You know proof positive 
in the laboratory of real life that France, Sweden, Belgium, Switzerland have all done this and they've all got the emissions outputs to prove that it can be done. The emissions output map uh, available online, it's, a, uh, it's quite sobering to look at it. We know the website. We all look at it, don't we? Oh, yeah, it's good value. It's good fun. Congratulations on your election win, Prime Minister Parker. Please outline your nuclear power implementation policy. And it's okay. not that crazy now because we just got a new Prime Minister yesterday. And I was so pleased. I got a call last night. And our new Deputy Prime Minister, apparently in his very first speech to the Australian people, Josh Frydenberg, the boy from Kuyong, and you better find, and I'll leave it to you to try and find this because I can't find the film clip. Right. But I got the call that in his very first talk, he mentioned nuclear energy for Australia. I'll have to look this up. So we need to look for the film clip. So what would we do? Okay, from what we've learned in South Korea and from the success cases around the world, the French, the Swiss, the Swedes, all of these, nuclear energy does not happen successfully <clears throat> in general without strong government backing. There is a very good 14-point plan that we have seen, the 14 lessons learned by the Korean industry. And amongst those issues, very first cab off the rank, what I would do as a Prime Minister is I would immediately start a dialogue with the Australian people to work out what we were going to do with the used fuel coming out of those reactors. You do not leave it to the end. You look at it right from day one. So you have a plan for what you're going to do with your used nuclear fuel. Now, it may be what the, what, the, what the Chinese are looking at doing is ultimately having a fast reactor program to burn that. So we could go to the, um, the fast reactors, the sodium-cooled fast reactors, or we could burn it up in uh, liquid salt reactors. There are a number of options, and these are things that I looked at at ANU. And they're great options, but they're in the future. The climate change challenge is a near and present danger that can only be actually resolved in the short term by pressurised water reactors or boiling water reactors if we want to go existing down Existing technology. But existing technology is there to do it. We know the price. We went to South Korea. We saw the reactors being built. We know the price and we've worked out a price for Australia, okay, for these reactors. The next thing we need to do is, in government buy-in, we do not need to shackle the Australian people with a lot of borrowed money from too much private enterprise at high interest rates. The Australian people need to buy in with this, and we need to be looking at our superannuation funds, our accumulated funds within Australia, to buy into this. We're talking probably for the reactor fleet, I'm thinking, about $125, $130 billion region. That's the type of money we're looking at. That's Australia? And we're talking in Australia. Right. No, as in, in Australian dollars. In Australian dollars. Half of those roughly would probably be built in New South Wales, uh, probably somewhat less in Victoria and some in the south of 
Queensland. Um, terrific resources so that we can maximise the use of our existing 500 kV power lines. We've got to use the resources we've got and the existing cooling facilities available, for example, in the Latrobe Valley or on coastal locations such as Portland, where the aluminium smelter is in Victoria. We've got to be looking at areas in New South Wales, in the, in the Hunter region, around the existing cooling facilities. We've got to try to build as many as them we can nearby the 500 kV and on coastlines to maximise the use of seawater cooling. So we've got, we can, we can cite the reactors fairly quickly, pump storage. Excellent. What would you say to our younger listeners that are interested in this technology? <clears throat> are you talking here about professional or are you talking about advocacy? Um, people that, you know, maybe, maybe they're at school, maybe they're wondering what to do with their lives, what to choose as a career. Then maybe they're listening to this and they think it's interesting. What would you... We have young Australian engineers now working overseas on nuclear power projects. Okay. If we take the advice of people such as Dr. James Hansen, there will be no solution to climate change without nuclear energy. People say it's the nuclear option. It's not the nuclear option, it's the nuclear imperative. We've got to get this option off the line. It's not the option, it's the imperative. We'll not do it with renewables because we will not be able to back them up sufficiently and, and our economy won't sustain it. I believe we're either going to have climate change or we're going to have nuclear energy. On that basis, I would encourage young people going into a career to go and get boned up on science and engineering and embrace it. And if that means that in the early parts of their career they have to seek a career overseas to get a bit, bit more experience, go for it. I would also encourage younger people who may be now graduates to go and look at the KEPCO International Nuclear Graduate School down near the Shinkori reactors near Busan in Korea and think about doing a course there on nuclear power engineering. So there are a number of places to do it. Uh, so I would encourage people to do it. You would be ballsy, you would be sticking your neck out, but everything I am learning tells me that it's the nuclear imperative. We've got to do it. Last chance to promote the Australian Nuclear Association before we leave. Where and when do you meet? Well, we meet at ANSTO. We meet about six times, seven times a year. But I would also suggest that younger people and prospective members also take heart, but particularly younger people, look at the Students for Nuclear at University of New South Wales, the University of New South Wales website. Lillian Caruana is heading up that group. We've got a meeting with them next week. So for younger people seeing this, get active, have a look at that 
what that student group are starting to do. There are, there are also groups for um, young people in nuclear energy. There is a very, very active group of women in nuclear based at ANSTAR. And for the, to join us, for people who want to come along and join us, and I would really advocate, we need to see some people in Melbourne, in particular, looking at putting together a chapter of the ANA in Melbourne, because there are a tremendous industrial base in Melbourne and a number of people that could perhaps form a chapter of the ANA down there so we could share, share our resources. So we need to do more of this. We've got one in South Australia, but, but Melbourne would be a great place to get one going. Um, Ian Hall-Lacey, who's been the stalwart of the World Nuclear Association, lives in Melbourne, um, and we need to get a bit more active down there. But otherwise, come along and join us. Look at the Australian Nuclear Association website uh, for the times and places of meeting. Uh, come along to the four societies meetings as well. And in the intervening period, I'd put a plug in for my website, which is www.nuclearclimate.com.au and have a look at that, where I'm continuing to blog and roll out a plan for Australia for nuclear energy. Robert Parker, thank you very much for being on the podcast. And thanks for taking this initiative uh, and getting this going. It's, it's great to see people doing what you're doing and, and getting amongst this and taking the initiative. So thanks, thanks for what you're doing and helping us with it. No problem. Going Fishing would like to thank Robert Parker one last time for appearing on the podcast. His website is at www.nuclearforclimate.com.au. The Australian Nuclear Association website is at www.nuclearaustralia.org.au. The KEPCO International Nuclear Graduate School website can be found at www.kings.ac.kr. The electricity map can be found at www.electricitymap.org. Thank you for listening. At Fish and Going is the podcast's Twitter handle. Australia is a young nation located on the far side of the world. Our history demonstrates we can stand up to injustice, admit when we are wrong, and muster the courage to act in spite of our fears. By no means are we perfect, but we often punch above our weight on the world stage. Today, our greatest challenge is not posed by international tensions, but from how humanity chooses to progress. We have everything we need to lead the world in making the right choice, and we only need to embrace the courage to do it. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.